0: Here's how some people spend their time, competing in soil-judging competitions. Did you even know such a thing existed? I didn't. I learned it from Reverend Quinn Caldwell. He said this is what they do. They would put on hiking boots and t-shirts in their oldest, dirtiest pants. They'd gather up egg cartons and muffin tins and trowels, and they would head out to a field somewhere where they would meet up with other teams. Yes, there are enough of these people in the world to have different teams of them. They would meet up with other teams from schools all throughout the area, and then they would take turns climbing down into great big pits one by one staring at walls of dirt. There would be someone up on the edge of the pit with a stopwatch, and as the seconds ticked by, they would frantically take samples from each layer of soil, and they would deposit them into their egg cartons or muffin tins, one by one, to keep them separate and organized. And then they would get to judging. They would look at the soil and they would, they would roll it between their fingers. They would smell it. They would taste it. They would take a handful and spit in their palms and roll it around to see if it would form a ball. That's how you know how much clay is in your soil. I don't know anything else about soil judging, but I do know that's why they spit in their palms. and they'd write all these observations down on filthy clipboards. And they would make their pronouncements about what kind of soil it is. And then the judges would take all those sheets and they would tally them all up and they would compare them to what they knew the soil actually was. And then somebody would go home that day with the trophy for knowing the most about dirt. These people are amazing in their own weird way. They could tell you like that whether your soil was an intisol, which it is if you're living in Birmingham, or an ultisol, which it is if you're anywhere else in Alabama, except of course, if you're living in the Black Belt, which you're obviously working with a vertisol. They knew exactly what kinds of building, if any, you should construct on your loamy, mixed, superactive calcareous, typic, torofluvant soil. And they knew just how much water the fine, mixed, active, thermic, abruptive, deryxical soil your cousin's backyard would hold. If there was a prehistoric sea there, Once upon a time, they knew it. If glaciers ever passed that way, they'd be able to see it. They knew if tectonic upheaval or trauma had ever occurred there, or if that soil had spent a long, long time just being built up by good organic matter. They could tell a whole history of a place just by licking the dirt. They could tell you almost everything of note that had ever happened there and what the soil was good for now. And because of all that they knew, if you were to walk up to them one day with, oh, say, some seeds to sow, they could tell you definitively if it was worthwhile to plant them there or not. Now we may not know much about intasol or ultasol, but we do know a thing or two about judging soil, especially when it comes to today's parable. This passage has often been treated as a moralistic tale, separating the different kinds of soil into different people and judging how they respond to the seed of God's word. Growing up, I heard this parable taught and preached as admonishment. What kind of soil are you? Are you bringing in the best harvest of all that God has invested in you? It's the transactional model that we default to. The seed of God's Word didn't take root and grow full and strong in us. It was because our hearts were too hardened. There were too many rocks and impediments in the way, or somehow we had let predators around us steal the joy of God's word from within us, leaving the garden of our lives dry, fruitless, and barren. I remember hearing these sermons and worrying about what kind of ground I was on with God. I worried about how many birds were in my field, how many rocks, how many thorns. I worried about how I could clean them all up. But what, what determines the type of soil that I am? Can I improve my own soil? I mean, if I was born a little rocky or a little thorny, if the circumstances of my life have somehow hardened me, Does that mean I have to improve my own soil if I want to save it? We're dealt with such different hands, genes, and DNA, and in the injustices of society. We don't always choose our soil. And plus, it isn't even just the state of the soil, It's, it's the sun and the rain, these things that are clearly beyond our control. I mean, this could seem like a really, really sad parable because the chances that the conditions will be just right for the seed to take root are so slim. One out of four seems practically tragic. We're either fertile soil or we're not. We're either worth God's word or we're not. That sound familiar? Well sadly it probably does, because this is the version of Christianity many of us have been taught. Are we good enough? Have we earned it? Oftentimes this parable is is preached as one of judgment, which isn't surprising. After all, when asked by the Barna Group what word best describes Christianity, Anyone want to take a guess on what the top response was? Judgmental. I think maybe that's because human religion so easily becomes about knowing right from wrong rather than knowing God. Pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew this. He said, he suggests that the original sin was choosing the knowledge of good and evil over the knowledge of God. See, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. And the snake said that if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. But there was another tree, the tree of life. Yet we chose knowledge of good and evil over knowledge of God. Bonhoeffer called this the fall upward. We chose to move God out of the center and put ourselves there. And ever since then, human religion tends to be more about the knowledge of good and evil than about the knowledge of life, the knowledge of God. This can pretty easily be seen in this parable. I think we naturally tend to read this parable as the parable of the judgment of the soil. But if this is actually the parable of the sower, as Jesus named it, then perhaps we got it all backwards. We hear this story and we think this story is about us. But what if we're wrong? What if it's not about us at all, but about the sower? As preacher and professor Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the focus is not on us and our shortfalls, but on the generosity of our maker, the prolific sower who does not obsess about the condition of the fields, who's not stingy with the seed, but who just casts it everywhere, on good soil and bad who's not cautious or judgmental or even very practical, but who seems willing to keep reaching into his seed bag for all eternity. Here's the deal. The seeds don't choose where they land. That's the responsibility of the sower. The soil doesn't choose how it's cultivated. That too is the responsibility of the sower. And what Jesus is trying to get into our heads is that the kingdom of heaven, this way of life, is not our idea. It's not something we can think of, we can control, we can cultivate. It is of God. And it requires an adjustment on our part on what we think real life may be. In Isaiah, to which Matthew repeatedly refers, the sower, God says, Indeed, my plans are not like your plans, and my deeds are not like your deeds. Well, no kidding. If we were in charge, we would devise a much more efficient operation. A neater, cleaner, more productive one that didn't waste seed on birds and thorns and rocks but concentrated only on the good soil and what we can make it do. And yet, Isaiah says, the rain falls from heaven and waters the crops and provides seeds for the plants and food for those who need to eat. In the same way, God says in Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And not for nothing, but that Hebrew word for purpose here can also be translated as delight. It shall accomplish that which I delight. For you shall go out in joy, and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And so maybe, Nadia Bolts Weber says, maybe the point of this parable isn't judgment at all, but joy. Since again and again, in the midst of this thorny, rocky, and good world, God is still sowing a life-giving word, just wantonly and indiscriminately, scattering it everywhere, like God doesn't understand our rules, what would it be like to stop judging the soil of ourselves and others and instead experience the joy of the sower. Maybe it would be a little bit like heaven. As one preacher put it, the purpose of these parables is not to get us into heaven so much as it is to get a little heaven into us. Because if we're honest, we're not a certain type of soil. We're the whole agricultural landscape. Because the truth is that none of us, none of us trust the gospel at all the time. None of us get it right all the time. We are people of belief and unbelief all at the same time. And if we're right about that, then the message of the story is this, that there is no place, no circumstance, no situation, no relationship where faith cannot be found, where good news cannot be found. The gospel should inform every moment of our lives because with the gospel, you can't always tell where the good soil can be found, so you sow it everywhere. Here's how some people like to spend their time. Gorilla gardening. Did you know such a thing existed? It does. I'm friends with a few of those folks in this neighborhood, and I think there are some who are members of this congregation and sitting in the pews with you right now. But they are undercover. Here's what they do. They get dressed in the most inconspicuous clothes that they have, secreting on their persons the tools of their trade. Like CIA agents strapping on weapons under their jackets, they hide work gloves and trowels and... Bulb planters, anywhere that won't show when they walk down the street. And then they load up their pockets or their cars with seeds. And then they go cruising. Here's what they're looking for, ugliness, barrenness, neglected urban tree wells. Ugly roadside verges, abandoned lots, empty traffic islands in the middle of intersections, and under under the cover of night, or surreptitiously when no one is looking, or sometimes in broad daylight just trusting that anyone who sees them will assume that they have the right to be doing what they're doing. They start planting. And these people are amazing. They've taken the time to learn what kinds of plants can survive an entire summer of being peed on by every dog in the neighborhood. (laughs) They've learned what will grow in compacted, polluted, urban soil. They know which can compete with weeds without help and they know which quote-unquote weeds are actually good for the soil. They've learned what can thrive without watering in the middle of an intersection in mid-July. They've made it their business to learn what will survive in the most inhospitable of environments. And not just survive, but redeem the soil. That they're planted in, which is to say they know a thing or two about the dirt they're working with. And if the rest of us can't imagine how anything could ever grow in places that they are planting in, well they don't consider that to be their problem. For those times when the forces of barrenness and decay are just a little out of reach, They've developed long-range weapons. They call them flower bombs. A flower bomb, also called a seed bomb, is a small homemade ball of dirt, fertilizer, and hardy seeds casually tossed over a wall or a chain-linked fence or into an otherwise inaccessible property. Flower bombs lie inconspicuous and inert until the first rain, at which point they begin to dissolve into small mounds and the seeds begin to grow. Their little piles of soil and fertilizer protect the seeds from birds and give them a head start that helps to establish them, even in the most inhospitable of places. And flowers bloom in the desert. I want to tell you something that if someone is a gorilla gardener, chances are they're most certainly a skilled home gardener. They probably spend a lot of time planting in soil that they have made. Rich, fertile, loamy, airy, dark, and well-fed soil. The kind of soil that might return 30, 60, Or a hundredfold the effort that's put into it. And yet, they spend their free time casting seed on the road and among rocks and thorns. And yet, when it gets too hard to plant in close range, they concoct wildflower seed bombs in their kitchen when they could be smelling their own roses. And yet they risk falling off fences, getting hit by cars on busy highways. They risk fines and censure just to plant flowers that they don't know for sure will grow in places the rest of us try hard not to even notice on land that isn't even theirs. All for the joy of seeing beauty spring up in the barren. Maybe, maybe the kingdom of God is like this. Once there was a great judge of soils, the greatest there ever was, who just by looking at it, just by tasting it, just by smelling it, could tell everything there was to know about a patch of soil. All of its trauma, all of its glory, all of its history, And one day, that judge decided to change everything. And so that judge gathered a great army of sowers, and into their bags he poured seed with abandon, without thought of economy, and said, take this seed, go out and sow. Sow some in the good soil, for sure, because we we need good soil. We need big returns so we can get more seed to plant. But don't you waste it all on the easy stuff, and don't you dare plant all this seed in your own backyard. You go out and find roads that are barren and ugly, and you sow it there. You find rubble and sow it among the rocks. You find places that are choked and tangled with thorns, and you sow it there. And if it looks like it's not going to work, and if they laugh at you for planting it there, if they judge you for planting it there, then you just remember this I will be the judge of the soil. And I will be the one who says where the seed gets planted, and I. Will be with you always." And maybe, maybe the kingdom of God is like this. So the sowers went out to sow and they sowed on the road and they sowed in the rocks and they sowed in the thorns and they sowed in the good soil there too. And the good soil produced a hundredfold and that was great. And many of the seeds were eaten by birds on the road and many died among the rocks and many were choked by thorns, but some were not. And there was a woman who had been walked on by too many feet and too hard used by too many men and steamrolled by life until she was hard and cracked as Red Mountain Expressway. And a sower, a sower came to her at First Light Shelter and whispered, God is in love with you. And didn't she start to flower right through those cracks? And there was a city school system that was reduced to rubble and rock. And a group from Jones Valley began planting seeds on their playground. And a church in Birmingham tossed a seed bomb that way and gathered with a group of children from the Fresh Air Farm in Bluff Park. And didn't homes and Hope grow up from the ruin? And there was a man who had nothing better to do all day long than to go to work and watch TV. And he was bound round with the brambles of apathy and advertising and overwork and entertainment. And a sower came to him and said, come with me, for you have a purpose and it is holy and it is high. And didn't he get up and go out into the brightness and the air? And didn't he start to plant? Let those who have ears to hear, listen. Amen.